<laughs> Welcome again to Dangerous Thoughts. Uh, today is Wednesday, uh, what, September 14th. I'm your host, Carter Laren. Uh, this is on Unsafe Space. You're watching uh, Dangerous Thoughts on Unsafe Space. This is a, a show in which we, you know, dedicate ourselves to reason, individualism, and uh, really helping to usher in Enlightenment 2.0, so to speak. Um, and uh, and we focus on cognition. And so today we're going to do a, I, I always say the show is short. I'm not sure it's going to be actually short, but sometimes I think it's going to be a short show. And it turns out not to be a short show. Uh, last week I was almost three hours, so it's not going to be like that. Um, but we'll see how short it actually is. But I think it might be short. We're going to do a quick discussion of the Quickie Farms drama. For those who don't know the Quickie Farm stuff, we're going to quickly cover Quickie Farms um, and some of that drama. And then we're going to talk about, you know, I've been asking people on, on this show to do, both in Discord and uh, on the show, I've been asking about, uh, troublesome arguments, stuff that arguments you've been having trouble refuting or arguments you'd like to make that you're having trouble articulating. And today we're going to tackle a question about digital media and information saturation and see if we can kind of um, dig into that a little bit. Uh, also, as a reminder, don't forget to make sure you're subscribed. YouTube has a habit of unsubscribing people. And, um, and also, you know, we really would appreciate any financial support you can throw our way. You can uh, join at uh, Subscribestar or at unsafespace.com. You can, you can donate or you can become a regular member and get your name in the credits and that kind of stuff. Um, access to the Discord server uh, if you are a member. And also, please, uh, you know, whether or not you can support us financially, please share this content. It really helps. And I think I was saying before when I found out the mic was bad uh, that, um, that uh, a lot of these shows are evergreen. Um, at least the dangerous thought shows they're evergreen top uh, topics. They're not always topical. So like the Kiwi farm stuff is topical. Um, but a lot of the stuff like the rest of the show is not um, like news, news related. So you can watch it later. So if there's something in particular, an issue you want us to cover, uh, you want me to talk about uh, that's more abstract and less tied to the news. Let us know what it is. We might have a show on it. If we don't, maybe we'll make one. Uh, someone in chat saying I mispronounced. Maybe I said Quickie Farms. It's Kiwi Farms like the fruit. That's correct. Okay, Stephen Landau saying turn up the levels. I think this is this is as high as the levels go, as far as I <laughs> as far as I know. Uh, this is this is where my levels are. So there you go. That might be better. Anyway, let's let's just keep it this way. Um, unless unless people tell me this isn't good, I'm going to keep it this way. I can't stand dealing with this stuff. All right. It really, it really throws off my entire thought process to deal with audio issues, and I'm really annoyed at these audio issues keep happening. Um, it's a nice mic that I have. It's a $250 mic, but apparently it only works intermittently. So um, let's first let's kick it off by talking about Cloudflare and uh, Kiwi Farms. Um, you guys might have, you know, you might have heard a little bit about Kiwi Farms and the Cloudflare. It's Cloudflare. I'm going to sometimes say Cloudflare because that rolls off my tongue more easily. If I do, I'm misspeaking. It's Cloudflare with an L. Um, but you might have heard about some of this stuff or you, you, you hear bits and pieces in the news, um, but maybe don't know what's going on. I think there's, 
it's an important example of how our culture and our knowledge system can be used to enforce conformity to progressive values. Uh, and so I think it's, it is worth knowing about and talking about. So uh, for those of you who don't know, Kiwi Farms is kind of like a, think of the, the chans, like it's kind of like it was kind of like an anything goes discussion kind of site. It was particularly, it was particularly mean, like lots of hateful, nasty things. You can't defend that there was like lots of mean and, and nasty stuff on Kiwi Farms. Uh, they viewed themselves largely as what they would call milking lol cows, L-O-L cows, like moo, like the animal. Um, and what that what they mean is like basically trolling people, getting them to have reactions. So getting lols from people by doing stuff and then so they're milking lols from these lol cows. So that's kind of their MO. They are pretty, they were pretty hostile, I think, to like a lot of the trans activism stuff. So they definitely had that bent, but they were hostile to anyone they didn't like, both on the left uh, and on the right. And um, in fact, uh, there's evidence that Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of the reasons the site was actually taken down. Uh, it was taken down. We're going to talk about that. Um, there's evidence that there was doxing that would happen sometimes on the site, uh, which isn't illegal, but is, you know, maybe morally questionable. Um, and there's also evidence that there's sometimes there are violent threats, but those did appear to get quickly downvoted and removed. There was a, my understanding, and I wasn't a community member at all, but there, my understanding is that there was a, a kind of rule among the people who use Kiwi Farms, which is <laughs> don't touch the poo, uh, which like, <laughs> which meant like, there's the, they're the people you're trying to milk for laws. There's like the law cows, and, like you're not supposed to actually go out and interact with them. Like you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to just make fun of them in in kiwi farms but you're not supposed to like actually go do anything out uh like to them directly right which is this don't touch the poo rule which is a funny sounding rule so that was this that was the site dawn says i know nothing about this but notice the past tense well the past tense is very recent dawn um i'm I, that sounded like a weird way to say your name i wasn't trying to be mean it, it was very recent uh you you like I learned about it right before it was gone. And I think a lot of people have, um, and, and, you know, some people are learning about it after it's gone. So there is a Twitch streamer and trans activist named, uh, well, her name, her Twitter handle or whatever is Keffels, uh, K E F F A L S. Um, and, uh, she is generally an online drama queen. Um, she stirs up mobs. Um, she's willing to dox and harass people herself and to get her mobs to do it. There's evidence of her dishonesty. But she's certainly not someone who's trying to avoid online drama, avoid interaction. She is all about the drama and, you know, all this kind of interaction. So the short story here, and I'm going to, this is the short version. It it actually is much more complicated. Um, so, if you're very familiar with it, you might be like, you're glossing over this and that. Like, yes, I'm, this is the short version. Uh, if you actually are interested in details of all this, Jesse uh, Signal and Kate, Katie uh, Hersog 
have a podcast called Blocked and Reported, and they did a detailed two-part episode about all this drama. It's probably more detailed than you care about. Uh, but they, Jesse in particular, spent a lot of time investigating this and really understanding the culture and, and what was going on. Anyway, uh, Keffels, this trans activist Twitch streamer, she um, she ended up with a couple threads on Kiwi Farms, not that she was not that she was in, but that were about her, with like fifty thousand messages saying, you know, mean things about her or whatever. And apparently during this, she was uh, doxed. Now, because she's the kind of person she is, she was already doxed. She's already been doxed on other sites. She's got lots of haters and people who are, you know, because she stirs up drama and hatred. Her info was actually already elsewhere. So it's not 100% clear how this is all traced to Kiwi Farms, as far as I can tell, but she claims it was the, you know, it, the doxing maybe did happen on Kiwi Farms, although it had happened previously. And then she was swatted. It's not clear how exactly that was, you know, verified as Kiwi Farms, but she was swatted. Um, and so as a result, of, and she lived in, I think, London, Ontario in Canada. And she, as a result of her swatting, uh, she claimed that she had to move to Ireland. I think she's now in Iceland, but at the time she's like, I got to move to Ireland. But by the way, this all happened at the beginning of August. So we're like a month out, month out from this. Um, she claimed she had to move to Ireland. She raised $100,000 on GoFundMe to for legal defense in case she needed it or whatever and to deal with her doxing. Um, and then she, she went to Ireland and promptly screwed the pooch on operational security and revealed where she was, right? I mean, just like, it, you know, but I, my suspicion is she doesn't care. Like she wants to reveal where she is because she wants more drama. That started more drama in Ireland with her. So she claimed people were following her around the world, blah, blah, blah. Um, and she started in mid-August, she started this hashtag on Twitter, you might have seen, called Drop Kiwi Farms. Someone says a lot of the activist Kiwi Farms kept tabs on were genuinely heinous people. Yes. Yes, that is true. Um, that is true. But I, I don't know about all of them. Uh, so anyway. Um, wait, did I spell uh, Keffel's name wrong? <laughs> is it not Keffel's? It's Kerfuffles? <sighs> I, I hate these people. I mean, just the, like, the drama, the, the names, and, like, yeah. No, it's it's Keffels, K-E-F-F-A-L-S. All right, just making sure. You never know. Okay, so, anyway, she started this hashtag on Twitter, and using the, and, and her first, the way she kind of started it was she, uh, she targeted Cloudfair. Now, Cloudfair is a... They're not really a hosting platform, but they're a security services website, like platform. So if you host a website that might be um, the target of attacks, uh, one of the, there's a standard attack, which is illegal, by the way, but it is an attack, which is called a distributed denial of service attack. It's when you get a bunch of people to like, uh, or you make a bunch of bots usually to all go to the website at the same time and the sheer volume crashes the website and can't keep it up so that normal people don't want to use it um uh, can't and cloudflare has 
technology that helps to mitigate this and make it more difficult. I don't know exactly what the technology is. I haven't looked into it. I assume it's kind of some kind of dynamic domain name service stuff so that uh, you can host your, you can not, not host, but use, use the Cloudflare service. And that will, it kind of sits in between uh, when you type in a browser, the Cloudflare kind of sits in between your request and uh, the web in the actual server that delivers that so that um, the actual IP address, I don't know if it's hidden or whatever, but regardless, or it changes dynamically, whatever it is, it, it it's to prevent these distributed denial of service attacks. So um, Kiwi Farms had, was, they were using Cloudflare. I think they also have a CDN and some other stuff. There's other services at Cloudflare, but um, so that's, that's what they do. Uh, and so like most leftist mobs, right? They started to attack Cloudflare and say, you have to drop Kiwi Farms, drop Kiwi Farms, drop Kiwi Farms. Now the implication here is that, hey, well, if you drop Kiwi Farms, they'll be vulnerable to the stack. People will attack them, which is illegal. Uh, and then they'll go down. That was the thing. Oh, someone said, uh, Greg the Baritone says, Carter, that was a joke, wordplay. I'm just, I'm just dumb. <laughs> Kerfuffles was a joke. Yes. Keffel's kerfuffles. Okay, so so that's the status. This starts happening. There's a gang, mostly lefties, on on the internet, mostly on Twitter, with this drop Kiwi Farms hashtag. And on August 24th, Marjorie Taylor Greene reports on I think she was on Fox News somewhere that she was doxed, and um, she I don't know I I guess the suspect not doxed I'm sorry swatted. The suspect that swatted Marjorie Taylor Greene, like, gave police a username from Kiwi Farms. Now, can you say uh, false flag or whatever? Like, yeah, I don't know if the person was, I don't know how they know that the person was actually the person on Kiwi Farms. But uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene didn't care. She went on Fox News, and because she's unprincipled, um, like a lot of people on the right, they're just as unprincipled on the people on the left. Instead of defending free speech and saying, look, swatting's illegal, we should go after this guy because that's bad, but the site should be allowed to say nasty things about people. Uh, she did no investigation of her own. She took what the mainstream media was saying about the website, which which is that it was like this website just for swatting and doing horrible stuff, and uh, which is not. And she said that, she quote, this is a quote from MTG. She says, that website needs to be taken down, right? She says they should not be allowed to exist. And she goes on on Fox. To, she, it's it's kind of funny because she assumes that it's a Democrat site. She's like, that's what these people do. They don't they don't believe law and order, blah, blah, blah. Like it's it's not a lefty site. I mean, I, I don't think it, like I said, it's not completely political, but it, it leans right for sure. So, um, okay. So, that, so she does that. Now, so there's a lot of pressure building on Cloudflare to drop Kiwi Farms. And they released a statement that uh, I was quite impressed by on August 31st. They released a relatively, well, a principled statement. I'm, let's, let's look at it. I'll read you an excerpt. So this is a statement from the, uh, this is from the CEO. Matthew Prince, and I think she's a PR person or something. I don't know who Alyssa is, but 
Matthew Prince is the CEO. We're not obviously we're not going to read this whole thing, but we're going to read this section of it. And this is in response to the the claim the the calls for them to drop Kiwi Farms. He writes, some argue that we should terminate these services to content we find reprehensible so that others can launch attacks to knock it offline, right? So that others can do this illegal thing to knock it off, right? This is the equivalent argument in the physical world that the fire department shouldn't respond to fires in the homes of people who do not possess sufficient moral character. Both in the physical world and online, that is a dangerous precedent and one that is over the long term most likely to disproportionately harm vulnerable and marginalized communities. Today, more than 20% of the web uses Cloudflare's security services. When considering our policies, we need to be mindful of the impact we have and precedent we set for the internet as a whole. Terminating security services for content that our team personally feels is disgusting and immoral would be the popular choice but in the long term, such choices make it more difficult to protect content that supports oppressed and marginalized voices against attacks. This isn't hypothetical. Thousands of times per day, we receive calls that we terminate security services based on content that someone reports as offensive. Thanks, lefties. Most of the, <laughs> imagine how much that costs. They get thousands, they have to field thousands of calls. Most of these don't make news. Most of the time, these decisions don't conflict with our moral views. Yet two times in the past, we decided to terminate content from our security services because we found it reprehensible. In 2017, we terminated the neo-Nazi troll site, The Daily Stormer. And in 2019, we terminated the conspiracy theory forum, 8chan. In a deeply troubling response, after both terminations, we saw a dramatic increase in authoritarian regimes attempting to have us terminate security services for human rights organizations often citing the language from our own justification back to us. Since those decisions, we have had significant discussions with policymakers worldwide. From those discussions, we concluded that the power to terminate security services for the sites with not a power, Cloudflare, should hold. Not because the content of those sites wasn't abhorrent, it was, but because security services most closely resemble internet utilities. Just as the telephone company doesn't terminate your line if you say awful racist bigoted things, we have concluded in consultation with politicians, policymakers, and experts that turning off security services because we think what you publish is despicable is the wrong policy. To be clear, just because we did it in a limited set of cases before doesn't mean we were right when we did it or that we will ever do it again. So, you know, I, I could write a more principled statement, but coming from a publicly traded company CEO is not bad. I, you know, they got he's got some nods to progressivism in there, but it's you know it's not a bad statement. So this is his statement on what I say, August thirty first, August thirty first. Now, uh, shortly after this, around this time, the mainstream media is is getting more and more interested in the story. They're starting to pick up the story. And so, uh, just a few days later, on, what is it, September 3rd, Cloudflare comes out after that statement on August 31st, the CEO comes out and does a complete 180, a complete 180 over Labor Day weekend. Let's take a look at his complete 180. We'll just read an excerpt. Starts with, we have blocked 
Kiwi Farms visitors to any of the Kiwi Farm sites that use any of Cloudflare's, Cloudflare's services will see a Cloudflare block page, tongue twister, and a link to this post. Kiwi Farmers may move their sites to other providers and in doing so come back online, but we have taken steps to block their content from being accessed to our infrastructure. This is an extraordinary decision for us to make, and yes, yes it is, especially given your statement a couple days ago, given Cloudflare's role as an internet infrastructure provider, a dangerous one that we are not comfortable with. So they're not comfortable with the decision. Why they do it? However, the rhetoric on the Kiwi Farm site and specific targeted threats have escalated over the last 48 hours to the point that we believe there's an unprecedented emergency, an immediate threat to human life, unlike we have previously seen from Kiwi Farms or any other customer before. I guess we don't need to keep reading this. So they did a 180. Um, now, as far as I can tell, and I haven't done a lot of research, but uh, like I said, uh, the Blocks and Reported podcast has done a, a deep dive on this. There doesn't appear to be actual real evidence that there's a that there was a crisis at all. Um, the only evidence we've seen is that there were two posts um, that were like violent and threatening. Um, both of those posts were made by uh, non-regular posters, people who like hadn't posted in a year and only ever had two posts to their name, including that one, that kind of stuff. Um, and and when they were posted, they were immediately downvoted. Uh, they were removed uh, by Kiwi Farms within like very short time, like like under an hour, like 15 minutes or whatever. And the users on Kiwi Farms called out these posts for being glowies. Right. In other words, they were saying you're a Fed, right? You're a Fed. Uh, you're trying to incite something like that's why you're posting. So they weren't actually regular members of the community. They were called out by the community. They were downvoted. Um, however, this appears to be what constituted this like dire emergency. Uh, that is this unprecedented problem they had to. Uh, they had to do. They had to. They had to react to. So after that, this one is even, I think this is almost worse. The Internet Archive uh, disabled uh, Kiwi Farms, not just moving forward, not just like we're not archiving it anymore, or even just these past couple days when it was allegedly really horrible, although there's only, there's very scant evidence that that's true. They rewrote history for us. They threw them down the memory hole and deleted all the past stuff from Kiwi Farm. So now if you go to Internet Archive, it doesn't exist. It never existed. It's not a thing. We've always been at war with East Asia, right? Uh, which is obviously Orwellian. That's my reference. So like I said, th that's all I'm going to say about the story. That's where we are today. They're not really functional. Um, there's some other stuff in the story. If you really are interested in the details, like I said, go listen to the blocks and report it. It's like two hour and a half long episodes or something like that's a lot of it's a lot of detail on this particular thing i have two points to make about this though and this is the reason i wanted to bring it up um the first point is that i think it if you're going to cave uh like the CEO did. If you're going to cave, it's actually better to cave immediately 
than to stand up for your principles and then cave later. Obviously, it's better to stand up for your principles and not cave at all. Uh, I shouldn't even need to say that. But, um, you know, it reminds me of it's this. It, this is how you train kids to be obnoxious, right? Um, I remember, uh, I, I remember seeing this kid in, uh, I don't know, it was probably a Safeway or something, like young kid, maybe six or something, I don't know, maybe younger. And, there, and we're in the checkout line, the kid's in front of me with his mom. And the kid wanted some piece of candy, I don't know, some candy bar thing, right? Some, you know, a diabetes pill. The kid was like, I, I really want this bar. And, they, you know, and doing the kid kind of thinks, Mom, come on, right? So um, the mom's like, no, we're not going to get this. Okay. Uh, but, you know, the mom's no was met not with frustration and like, well, and shutting down, right? Which is like um, when when my daughter was young, like if she was like, I really want the candy bar, I'd be like, nope. And she would like not be happy about it, but like that would be kind of over. She might say, please, and I'd be like, nope. And that would be over, right? Um, but this mom was like, nope. And the kid's like, please. And she's like, nope. But then the, the kid starts to escalate and he gets increasingly pushy. Mom, come on. Oh, please, no, please. And she starts to make excuses, right? She's trying to, oh, we just had this. Oh, mom, come on. And eventually, you know where this is going. The kid gets really obnoxious and at uh the, the local maxima of obnoxiousness uh thus setting a new bar the mom caves uh and gives the kid the candy bar now of course what's the mob training that child to do the mom is training that child that i will give in you will get your way but getting your way depends on escalation you need to escalate more and if you escalate enough eventually eventually i'll give in um and so she's training her child to uh, escalate that escalation works that continued whining more stomping your feet temper tantrums that will work and that's where that leads eventually this kid's you know this kid's going to take it to that level at least next time because he knows that that much works and if she holds off a little bit more uh she'll just yeah, but but still gives in um you know Again, he'll he'll know his new maximum that he can go to, right? That he needs to go to. Um, and of course, I did the opposite with my daughter when she was young, right? She would say, like, "Oh, please, can I have this? Whatever." And 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 I would say, "Look, if you're gonna if you're gonna escalate, I, you have to use kids' words, but like basically, like if you're gonna escalate, if you're gonna keep asking me after I've told you no, I'm gonna say no an extra time next time, <laughs> like." I'm going to like there are times when I might say yes, but I'm going to add another no to that later if you keep this up because that's behavior that I want to discourage. Right. And that's when, you know, that's when they switch to like whatever. OK, fine. Um, this is what Cloudflare's CEO is doing to the leftist mobs. He is training the leftist mobs that these large internet companies who attempt to stand on some kind of principle will give in if they are harassed enough, if the mom's loud enough. And I think we would be all better off if he just gave in right away and said, you know what? Uh, we're just afraid of mob. We have no principles. We're not going to stand on the principles. Sure. Right. 
we'll just we'll just give it. Um, at, at least the mob's not being trained to escalate. It's, it's not great, uh, but I think it's better than than showing the mob that you've got principles because what it does is it undermines is now anyone else who else who stands up and says no i'm on principle i'm not going to do this the mom's not going to believe them anymore so that's one point i wanted to make about this the other point i wanted to make is about um public companies uh and i i think public companies cloudflare is, is public uh, I think public companies probably can't stand up to the mob at all, no matter what they do. I don't know much about the CEO other than what we just read. Like, I don't know much about Matthew Prince, who's their CEO. He seems like he wanted to have some kind of moral stance. I couldn't, I can't tell if it was like pragmatically motivated based on what happened the last time they uh, dropped people. But it seemed like he wanted to have some kind of principled stance um, and didn't think that Cloudflare should be involved in this. But what you need to remember, and that's the best you're going to get, by the way, as a CEO, like, you know, generally he's like that. But you got to remember, he's not in charge. CEOs aren't ultimately in charge. The shareholders are represented by the board. That's who's in charge of a company. Um, and that's true whether it's publicly traded or not. But when it is privately held, you have control over your shareholders. You know, like you, your shareholders are people that you have invited to invest in your company um, or employees, right? So um, he's not in charge. The, the board's in charge and the board will respond to what they perceive are the cultural moods. So if the whole board's on Twitter and the mood turns against you, they're unlikely to support you taking any kind of stand against the mob because they're afraid. They're afraid. They believe that Twitter is the real world. Um, they are convinced that it's like everyone hates them. And, uh, and if, if shareholders act that way as well, you are going to be uh, coerced or cajoled or, you know, perhaps even fired if you don't listen. You're going to be pushed into caving. And... I just want to, let's just look at the, let's look at, let's look at the pressure that was on Cloudflare. All right, this is, this is Cloudflare's stock price. Now the market's been taking a hit lately. So this is starting way back in August, mid-August. Now, by the way, uh, Keffel's first targeted Cloudflare on August 14th, okay? So you can see here around August August 15th, 14th, 16th, or sorry, 15th and 16th, right on here. It's relatively, so actually you can see on the 15th is the baseline here. They're all kind of, uh, we're comparing them. So we're starting from some level. And you can see on, uh, so sorry, let me clarify what I'm doing. The market went down uh, generally over the past month. What I'm doing, Cloudflare is this bottom blue line. Their, their nearest competitor is Akamai, or one of their competitors is Akamai. They're this yellow line right here. And then I'm also comparing to the NASDAQ composite, which is this like teal line, and the orange, the darker orange line is the New York Stock Exchange generally. So you can see the, the NASDAQ composite and the New York Stock Exchange generally went down 
over the past month. So we expect it to go down. We can't say like, oh, you you had some different behavior than everyone else. However, um, let's look at right away, August 16th, you've got Akamai going up. New York Stock Exchange generally going up. Granted, the NASDAQ went down slightly. Cloudflare went down slightly. Okay. Now we start moving forward. Market down one and a half max. Our competitors down 1.4. Cloudflare's down 5%. This trend continues. They're down four times the market today. Uh, or, or, and this day, look, their competitors down 0.041% on August 19th. They're down 12. If you look at this blue line, Cloudflare has been sinking faster. For the most part, they've been sinking faster. Not every day, I guess, but for the most part, they've been sinking faster. Look how much this blue line separates from these other lines. There's some times where they kind of pull together a little bit closer here, right? But they've been sinking faster than the market and their competitors. Look at the difference here on this, on September 14th. This is today, right? They're down, you know, looks like they're down 23% and Akamai's down 7.92% as of today, right? So likely there's pressure. I imagine that the board's looking at this going, holy crap. Even if this isn't the reason they're down, I guarantee someone in that room is going to say this is the reason they're down. It's going to be a contributing factor that's brought up. And there's going to be pressure. There's going to be pressure on the CEO to cave. And they're going to say, dude, I don't fight this battle. These are a bunch of people that we don't like anyway. It's a cesspool of the site. We don't like it. Blah, 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 blah. Just cave. Stop standing on your principle. Get our stock price back up. Now, I don't think the stock price recovered, actually, but I can see that. Greg says, I thought Akamai was owned by someone like Amazon. No, I think they're, they're well, according to what we just looked at, they're independently publicly traded. Amazon has AWS, which is a competitor in their own CDN, which is a competitor to Akamai. All right. So, so those are two points I wanted to make. Uh, the one, I think it's, if, you know, if you're going to cave, you should just cave early because stop training people to be more aggressive as a mob. And two, I, I don't think public companies can stand up to the mob at all because of that pressure we just looked at. So, uh, you know, I'm, I've been long standing. I've been an advocate for, if you're building a company, avoid public markets. Now that's tough. If you take venture capital money, you're kind of, you're ended up forced into either public markets or an acquisition typically by a large publicly traded company. So if you take venture capital money, you're kind of forced down that path. Um, but I highly recommend staying. If you're building a company, I highly recommend staying out of public markets and making that uh, part of your long-term strategy to maybe build more slowly, stay out of the public markets. You don't want the regulation and you don't want this uh, situation where, you know, the shareholders pressure the board to make you do things you don't want to do. Um, so, and I think there might be an exception. I guess if you start a company and you're explicit in its politics from the very beginning uh, and you're very aggressive about it, maybe you end up with only shareholders and board members who have that intestinal fortitude uh, to stick out, you know, stick it out. Uh, for times like this, and maybe maybe you can get around it that way. But in general, I think it's dangerous. Um, and you can't control, when you're public, you can't control who buys your stock. So even if you mostly have shareholders who know, you know, you can easily end up with some institutional investor or some pension fund plopping money down there and, you know, suddenly 
you know, suddenly you're controlled by or influenced heavily by, you know, people that you aren't aligned with. Uh, and I think this this Cloudflare situation, this QE Farm situation, is an example of how um, important cultural values are as opposed to to laws. Like I've said before, um, you know, they'll let you have your constitution so long as they get the dictionary. Right? That's I've been saying that phrase or variant of it for years now. Right? And what I mean by that is um, the constitution, the laws, the entire form and structure of the government. All of this. It, it's kind of important, right? But it's it rests on this foundation of shared ethics, which in the U.S. is an individualist ethics. And when those shared ethics evaporate, or they're replaced by something else, or literally the language is replaced by something like when those when those ethics evaporate, they can actually replace the language, so they can undermine legal constraints by saying, "Well, we interpret this to mean blah blah blah," thereby literally undermining the entire intent of whatever's written. But you also get extra legal pressure, pressure outside of the legal and official system that supersedes legal freedoms that you might normally have. Um, and that's why, uh, you know, I, I think this is a good example of the importance of the culture war and a shared philosophy rather than just voting for the right person uh, and focusing on politics. So. All right. So that's that's that status. By the way, um, oh, that's the story. That's the story of, of Cloudflare and Kiwi Farms. I'm not going into any more detail on that. By the way, there is a poll in YouTube uh, chat if if you want about how much time you spend on social media. I'm curious about this audience in particular. I'm impressed with so far the number of people that are answering less than ten minutes a day. Someone said there needs to be an option for zero. Yeah, I know, but. There's no, we're only allowed four options on these polls, so. Okay, so let's get into some, let's get into this troublesome arguments section of this. There's a question, I won't say the name, uh, I'll say Richard is the guy's first name. Um, hi, Richard. Uh, Richard asked me this question on Discord and we went back and forth a little bit because I was wanting some concrete examples of what he was meaning. But I'm just going to read some of his words here, some excerpts. He says, one thing I find most people get caught in is failing to separate the signal from the noise. Perhaps you could, from your engineer mind, expound on this principle as it relates to parsing data in the social sphere. And I asked him to clarify some stuff. And he said, uh, well, we're saturated in information, accurate or not, that seeks our attention. My worry is that this is having a negative effect on our minds by shortening our attention spans and hacking our limbic system to bypass the cognitive function. I see this happening regardless of where one stands, left, right, apolitical, religious, or atheist, etc. So um, I think there's a couple basic things here that, that Richard is talking about. One is kind of a basic question, like how do we know what to pay attention to, right? Um, and this, if you don't know what he's meaning, signal from noise, I assume that's a metaphor everyone's familiar with, but sometimes I'm wrong about that. It's an engineering thing, specifically signals and electrical engineering signals and systems, and so uh, you know, there's lots of ways you can have filters, you can do statistical analyses, there's various ways to try and tease out signal from noise, none of which are particularly uh, good metaphors for anything. So we're gonna, I'm going to skip over the engineering part of it because uh, I, I don't think talking about uh, statistical analysis of complex signals in order to find data is going to be 
a useful metaphor. Um, humans, you know, we need cognitive solutions to this problem, not algorithmic solutions, right? So we're going to have a discussion about a cognitive solution to this problem. And I also, also want to point out his worry is that information saturation is negatively affecting our minds. So that's the worry here. Um, you could say, well, why is this important? Why should we, why should we care about this? Um, well, I think it's obvious. Uh, first of all, I think, uh, I, in my lifetime, this is just in my life and me growing up personally, in my lifetime, we've gone from, uh, I had a black and white television growing up. We had a black and white television with no cable, um, no computer, no video games before we got the first Pong game when it came out, but when it was younger, we didn't have that because it didn't exist. Corded phones, right? We had a rotary phone, actually. Um, long distance charges on your phone. Uh, if someone you cared about moved out of state, you'd basically never see or hear from them again. I mean, you could write them letters and call them maybe, but um, I remember my best friend when I was in like, I don't know, like young, like second grade or something. So whatever, I don't know what best friend means, but his name was Todd and he moved to New Hampshire. And it was like, I, you know, I, we visited like once or twice in the next you know, 10 years, but basically never saw him again. Right. Um, that's, and that's how it was. Um, and now, uh, everyone carries a computer in their pocket. That's 120 million times faster than Apollo era computers. And I got that stat from, that's an iPhone six. So that's a pretty old phone. I'm sure it's better now. I, I don't know what I have. I have an old phone. I think it's a, I don't know. It's like a 10 or something. It was probably faster. And if you got a new one, it's faster than that. So that means basically your phone, if you have an old iPhone 6, your phone could control 120 million Apollo missions. So that's pretty cool. Uh, I can text with friends that I've never met, friends in New Zealand or wherever. I, when my wife goes to China for work, I can video chat her every day, easily. There's no cost for any of this, no extra cost. It's a flat internet fee. That's where we are right? I could, on demand, I can basically watch every movie ever made that's worth watching, just about. I mean, there's some that, you know, but a large percentage of them and every TV show <laughs> that's ever made on a giant TV that I actually wouldn't want to be any bigger. It would be awkward and clumsy, right? Uh, I got a video game console with graphics that are nearly indistinguishable from reality. Um, and soon they'll be actually indistinguishable. I don't know if you guys remember, uh, in one of the shows a while ago, I did a, at the end, <clears throat> we went through a paper on general adversarial networks, which like deep fakes, GANs, uh, and, and noticed that actually, uh, GANs, GANs can create faces that are that from scratch that we perceive as more real than humans, than actual pictures. Right. So like, okay, there's, there's, there's a lot there. We got we have a VR device. We have an Oculus. I don't really use it much, but my wife's a tech nut, so she bought an Oculus to see what it was like. Um, that's where we are. So that's happened. All that's happened in my lifetime. Um, so there's been a dramatic change in how information and entertainment, which is a subcategory of information, is delivered to us and how we have access to it. And it's been an unprecedented change. And to minimize that, I think we minimize that change at our own peril. I'm going to read, there's an 
Atlantic article from, this is old, it's from 2008, but um, it's still relevant. Uh, it's by a guy named Nicholas Carr. I'm going to read the first, I'm not going to read the whole article, you know, Atlantic articles are long. I'm just going to read the first paragraph or so. Uh, it's titled, Is Google Making Us Stupid? What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. Uh, and again, this is, what, 14 years ago? Maybe now, if you're going to rewrite it now, you would cross out, is, you wouldn't be, is Google making us stupid? It would be, has Google made us stupid? I'm just going to read, actually going to read the first two paragraphs. Dave, stop. Stop, will you? Stop, Dave. Will you stop, Dave? So the supercomputer Hal pleads with the implacable astronaut Dave Bowman in a famous and weirdly poignant scene toward the end of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Bowman, having nearly been sent to a deep space death by the malfunctioning machine, is calmly, coldly disconnecting the memory circuits that control its artificial brain. Dave, my mind is going, Hal says forlornly. I can feel it. I can feel it. That's how this guy starts this article. And then he says, back, this is back to the author. There's no more, no more Hal quotes. I can feel it too. Over the past few years, I've had an uncomfortable sense that someone or something has been tinkering with my brain, remapping the neural circuitry, reprogramming the memory. My mind isn't going so far as I can tell, but it's changing. I'm not thinking the way I used to think. I can feel it most strongly when I'm reading. Immersing myself in a book or a lengthy article used to be easy. My mind would get caught up in the narrative or the turns of the argument, and I'd spend hours strolling through long stretches of prose. That's rarely the case anymore. Now my concentration often starts to drift after two or three pages. I get fidgety, lose the thread, begin looking for something else to do. I feel as if I'm always dragging my wayward brain back to the text. The deep reading that used to come naturally has become a struggle. And then he goes on to say, I think I know what's going on. For more than a decade now, I've been spending a lot of time online. All right. So that's why this is important. Feelings aren't an argument, but if that resonates with you, resonates with me, uh, yeah, I feel it too sometimes. So let's look at how to untangle this. I, let's let's look at how to answer this question. So again, the, the main the main question here is, uh, you know, how do we know what to pay attention to, and you know what's going on with this information saturation? How's it affecting us? Is it negatively affecting us? Um, and I think uh, in terms of the base, let's let's just start on the basics of what's happening right now. Uh, I think there's two important factors to this information saturation. One is just the sheer volume of information, obviously, but the other is an engineered presentation of this information. Uh, the volume itself, it's kind of a problem, but I think it's actually less of a problem. Um, it's still unique in human history to have access to this much information, obviously. Um, there is a thing called choice paralysis. I think I might have given this uh, anecdote before, and it's related to, it's from a 
paper I read a long time ago, and I don't remember where it is, but I'm sure there, it, I know this has been replicated in other papers, so you can find this. Um, there is this choice paralysis thing where um, I think the, the study I remember was there was like pastries and a pastry shop or something. And like they, they noticed that when you only have like seven choices of pastry, you buy a certain amount. But if they increased it to a lot more choices, you'd think, oh, great, more choices, they'll buy more. They have, people actually bought less. Uh, and the reason for this was this kind of decision paralysis, this choice paralysis. Like you, they were overwhelmed. Um, your, your brain, your crow can only hold a certain amount of uh, concepts in at one time. Uh, I think that's the reason why telephone numbers were originally intended to be seven digits, you know, with, without the area code, right? Because seven was around the number that most people could hold in their head uh, pretty easily. Now, obviously, evolutionarily, our brains did not need to choose from a hundred different pastries. That wasn't a that wasn't a, a cognitive function we needed to develop. Uh, focus was very important for us. So when we're out hunting. We needed to be able to, uh, you know, ignore lots of other distractions, other thoughts, maybe even other things that are happening. If you're you're in a you know you're hiding and you're you know you're gonna sneak up on an animal, you know you and there's a bug on you or there's an itch you're itchy you got to like ignore this you got to focus on the task at hand you got to focus to hunt. We had to use our long term planning uh, and and our inhibition. We had to we had to have a developed prefrontal cortex uh, to inhibit our impulses and so that we could plant food, for example, and plan for the winter and be like, okay, well, I can't eat all this stuff now. I got to put some of it in the ground because then I need it. All right, sorry, I need to put some of it in the, in the, in the store of grain and I can't eat my grain stored over the winter when I'm hungry because I need it in the spring to plant or whatever. Like that's all longer term planning and inhibit inhibition uh, development. Right. Um, but our choices were pretty limited, right? You know, when we were out, we didn't have, we didn't, you know, come across a display case with 80 different pastries in it, right? We, you know, our choices were like, our sugar choices were like, there's a berry. Do you pick it or not? Like that there's not, there wasn't a plethora of berry. You didn't, you know, run across in the woods like, oh, I'm in the mood for blueberries or raspberries or strawberries today. It's not like, it's not like going to the supermarket. So we didn't really need to develop this uh, ability to, deal with a whole plethora of choices. Now, even in modern times, like a hundred years ago, let's say, which is, you know, relatively modern compared to the history of all humans, even, even in modern times, a hundred years ago or so, you know, basically all of our options were still pretty limited, right? Our, our food options were still pretty limited. Our clothing options were pretty limited. Our entertainment options were pretty limited. You might have a couple books to choose from, maybe. Um, even even the career options and fields of study were relatively limited, right? Um, even your your choice in spouses and friends were limited to like, well, these are the people that I know. You know, you can't. There was no go on Match.com and see if someone in New Jersey matches your, you know, like that. That wasn't a thing, right? So all of your choices were pretty limited. Um, so I, I don't think that volume alone though, is the problem here. Um, it's, it's really how it's, it's, it's how the volume is presented to you. So, um, here's an example. 
let's imagine you're out to a nice restaurant. You take your spouse out to a nice restaurant. Um, and it's one of these restaurants that's got like, let's say there's a hundred different alcoholic drinks on them. Or yeah, a hundred different drinks. We don't even say they're alcoholic. hundred different drinks that they can make. There's a full bar and whatever else and an extensive wine and beer selection and everything. There's a hundred different drinks. Um, now there's a difference. Like what your actual experience is, is that uh, they break down these choices for you. So that each at each step in the process, the choices fit in your crow. They, they fit in your brain, right? First, the waiter's like, well, would you like a drink list at all? Do you want, and which is, which is like, would well, you want alcoholic beverages? Do you want the alcoholic drink list or do you want, you know, you just want water or, you know, uh, something else, right? So do you want the drink list? Yes. No. Okay. But then the drink list has got like, well, there's a section for wine, there's a section for beer, there's a section for cocktails, there's a, maybe if the drink list has non-alcoholic stuff, there's a section for that. So you make a decision like, well, what do I want? Do I want wine with this meal? Do I want beer with this meal? Do I want a cocktail? What am I in the mood for right now? Right? And then let's say you choose wine. It's like, okay, well, I'm, we're going to pretend it's a pretty ex extensive restaurant with a nice wine list for this example, but... Uh, you might say, well, why not red or white wines? Like, okay, well, I'm at a, because it's me, I'm at a steakhouse, so I'm going to want red wine. So, okay, I make my decision. Maybe there's a red section on the menu. Okay, now, often you'll have places that have extensive wine lists. They'll also break it down maybe by country of origin even. Like, do you want Italian wine or Spanish wine or California wine or French wine or New Zealand wine or whatever? Like, often they have that. So then, you know, I usually choose Italian or French. <laughs> if I see that, I hate Californian wine. So, uh, okay, okay, so I choose Italian, and then I look through, and then it's like, okay, well, what type of grape do you want? How much tannins do you want? Like, do you want a Barolo, or do you want a, you know, Belpocella? Right? Like, where do you want to be on the Italian wine spectrum? Um, so at each step, they break this down so that you're not dealing with all the choices at once. Imagine what your restaurant experience would be like if instead of what I just described, you sat down with your spouse at a table, and a mob of wine and liquor vendors stood around you, shoving glasses in your face, going like, take a sip. This is the this is the best IPA west of the Mississippi, right? And like, here's George Clooney's favorite vodka. <laughs> and people are, oh, this first glass is free. Try my Chardonnay, right? Like, it would be overwhelming. It would be annoying. It also would be overwhelming. Even if they didn't do that, if they just stood there and there was 100 people standing around you in a circle with like, this is what we have. Like, would you like more information about it? It would be totally overwhelming. It's disorganized. Like you would look at the hundred things and be like, I don't know what I want, but you can easily get to what you want if it's organized properly. And each step, uh, you don't have to make that many choices. You know, there's not that many choices to choose from in each step. So one of these examples is a nice dinner experience. And the other is like an overwhelming catastrophe. So uh, this is my argument for like the information. Yes, we have information overload, but the presentation of this information matters deeply, deeply. Um, so I wouldn't, I would be the last person to argue we shouldn't have a variety of wines because after all, choosing from a hundred different Italian red wines is too much. Nope, that's fine with me. I just don't want it to be presented all as one big bit. All right. It needs to be presented well. So now we ask ourselves uh, ourselves a more interesting question, I think, which is uh, how is the vast information of the internet the internet presented to us now? 
And I think this is something few people really understand. Um, there's a Sun Tzu quote, you know, the famous Sun Tzu quote, which I'm sure everyone's heard. You know, know, know the enemy, know yourself. In 100 battles, you'll never be in peril, right? Um, I'm not necessarily saying that the presenters of this information are your enemy. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we do need to understand how information is presented to us on the internet. And I think a good starting point for that is this book. It's an old book. It's called Hooked, Old by Tech Standards. It's called Hooked is by Nir Eyal. Um, there's a class on Stanford, uh, at Stanford uh, on this kind of stuff. Um, this is the foundation for how most apps, social media, all that kind of stuff is. This is the foundation that, the, that is used to develop this stuff. It's more advanced now because this is a little bit, I haven't read this in years actually. I lost my other copy. I had to buy a new one recently, but I, you know, I haven't read it in, in years. But um, let's just go through what this, I, I think it's important to understand the structure of these products because you're interacting with these products. Um, and I think a lot of people just don't even understand the structure. In fact, if there's anyone in chat who already knows what I'm going to say and already knows the hooked structure, please tell me. Because I'm curious, because I know some of you are software engineers, so you might have run across this stuff. But I bet that a lot of people don't even know this. And this is, again, this is pretty basic. This is pretty basic. Uh, all right, let's, I'm going to pull up, I'm going to pull up this. Okay. This is the hook model. So, Let's just walk through this for a moment. We're going to start in the upper left-hand corner. I want to work our way clockwise. <clears throat> so in the up, up, upper left-hand corner, we have something called the trigger. Now, the trigger is the, the, the actuator of behavior. It's the button. It's the call to action, right? Click here, subscribe here, follow here, like this. When I, at the beginning of a show, when I, if I say, make sure you're subscribed, that's a call to action, right? Like this, that's a call to action, right? Um, the trigger is the actuator of behavior. Um, and there's two different types of triggers. There's external triggers, which is kind of where every product really starts. And then if you are lucky, you get to, you get to internal trigger. Um, then external triggers, these are the things that are like in, embedded with information and they tell you what to do. So click here, right? That's the standard external trigger, or just an app, an icon of an app on a screen that's alluring. Like you look at your Instagram app on your phone, it's like, oh, that's the trigger. That reminds you of Instagram, and maybe you, you click you click on it or press it. Tap, I guess is the word you tap it. Um, internal triggers are triggers that manifest automatically in your mind. Um, this is you have an emotional you're feeling lonely or you're feeling a certain way, you're feeling anxious, whatever, you have some emotional need and it triggers thinking about the product, right? So connecting these internal triggers with a product is what Nirayal says in his book is the brass ring of habit forming technology. So the goal here in this book is he's describing, by the way, I should have read the subtitle. It's how to build 
habit forming products. This is the goal, right? Because you're competing for eyeballs, you're competing for time. So anyone you're interacting with on the internet, you know, any, any real company, uh, like who's got an app or a social media website or whatever, they are thinking about how to make their product habit forming, right? And their goal is to get, one of their goals is to get to that internal trigger. And we'll talk about how they're going to get to that by moving clockwise through this, this, this hook uh, cycle. But they start with this external trigger, this call to action. Okay, now from there, uh, so you've got a call to action, so now you, you perform the action. That's, that's the behavior that someone does in anticipation of a reward, right? So there you, you, you have a product, you get someone, you tell someone to do something. So you, you optimize your call to action, you make it look pretty. Maybe you, they, they're very aware of decision paralysis, right? So they'll make sure that there's, if there's one really important thing, there's not going to be eight different buttons. There's going to be one button that's going to be big and they're like, do that thing. That's what they want you to do, right? So they, they get that trigger there. They get you to perform the action. So the action is this is whatever you're doing and you're anticipating some kind of reward, psychological reward. And there's, there's two basic, uh, uh, I all call them pulleys. There's two basic pulleys of human behavior, two leverages, um, two ways to leverage human behavior to increase the likelihood of the trigger turning into an action, right? And the two things they focus on there are the ease of performing the action. So how easy is it? Right? Um, so, uh, click here is an easy thing to do. Tap here. Those are easy things to do. Please visit www.unsafespace.com slash blah, 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 blah. That's a harder action to perform, right? Um, so you want to make it easy, right? Please download Tor and install it and then go on the dark web and do it like, okay, that's very complicated, right? So the ease of the action and the second, the second, um, uh, lever they can pull is uh, the psychological motivation to do this, right? Um, and there's a bunch of ways to kind of get you psychologically motivated to, to do this action, but uh, they can play on fear, they can play on excitement, they can promise things, right? Uh, click here to make a million dollars in the next 10 days, right? Whatever. Uh, the next, the next quadrant here is the variable reward. And this is a little bit counter, counterintuitive to people who, uh, are unaware of this stuff. Um, what we're describing here generally looks like a feedback loop. Uh, if you, if you're familiar with what a feedback loop generally is in electrical engineering or actually anything, um, I always think about electrical engineering, but if you're, if you're thinking about what a feedback loop is, um, it's, it's basically, uh, something happens, there's a result and part of, at least part of that result gets fed back in before the thing happens to change what happens next time a little bit or whatever, like to change the input. So there's a, there's a function, there's an input to that. I'm going to do it backwards, but there's an, there's an input to that function. There's a function. Uh, and then some of that output goes back to the input. So it changes what's input next time. Right? And that, that's kind of a feedback loop. So you can have a positive feedback loop, which is where things spiral out of control. And you can have a ne negative feedback loop where that dampens the input. So it's like you have a, let's imagine you've got like really loud noise coming in and you've got a, 
positive feedback loop, well, the noise is going to get louder and louder and louder. So it amplifies it, feeds it back louder and louder and louder and louder. It's going to blow your speakers, right? Or that's what you hear when you hear um, when someone grabs a microphone and it makes that obnoxious feedback loop noise. That's positive feedback is happening. It's a positive feedback loop. And a negative feedback loop is the reverse, where let's say instead of amplifying, it's suppressing the signal. It's uh, attenuating it. So it's a loud noise. It comes in. It gets quiet. Uh, it doesn't even have to be loud. The noise comes in, it gets quiet. Part of that quiet gets, uh, like, part of that gets subtracted from the, the input again, so it gets quieter and quieter and quieter and quieter, right? Um, so that's kind of at a very high level what feedback loops are. We're looking at a feedback loop here, but um, we're talking about a feedback loop with a variable reward. And the, the example that he uses in, in this book about a normal feedback loop is actually a refrigerator. You open the refrigerator, the light comes on, you close the refrigerator. You open it, the light comes on, you close it. That's very predictable. Predictable feedback loops don't give you a desire. You don't like, I mean, unless you're five, you're not like opening the fridge going, woo, the light went on again and closing it. Oh, wow, cool, the light went on. Oh, wow, cool. Like you would, people would think you're retarded if you did that all day, right? Um, but the example he gives is like, if every time you open the refrigerator, a different food was in there, you might, you might open the refrigerator all day long. Like, what's it going to be now? What's it going to be now? What's it going to be now? There's variability there. And that unpredictability is what, that is what, uh, um, that is what gives you a reward psychologically. Um, I'm just going to read an excerpt here. Research shows that levels of the neurotransmitter dopamine surge when the brain is expecting a reward. Although dopamine is often wrongly categorized as making us feel good, right? It doesn't. It's, it's the anticipation um, neurotransmitter. Although dopamine is wrongly categorized as making us feel good, introducing variability does create a focused state which suppresses the areas of the brain associated with judgment and reason while activating the parts associated with wanting and desire. So... Uh, earlier, Richard was asking, like, does it bypass your, like, reasoning ability? Like, yes. <laughs> it suppresses the areas of the brain associated with judgment and reason and activates the parts associated with wanting and desire. Uh-huh. That's what it does. Um, and this is why a lot of products will build in. They don't, they don't want a consistent reward, but want a variable reward. So, like, ex examples of non-tech products, uh, like, very obvious or like the lottery or slot machines. Now, those of us who are good at math don't play the lottery or sit down at a slot machine um, because we know it's ultimately losing over time. However, however, uh, it's easy to do that with money, at least for me, but with time, sometimes it's a little bit, it's harder to measure. Like if I spent a dollar and I know on average I'm going to make 90 cents, well, that's a no-brainer. But, like, if I spend a minute, how do I compare that minute of my time spent to the reward I got from that time? It's harder to make that calculation. Um, and tech products rely on that. All right. So uh, this variable reward stuff, this is, why, uh, this is why they want to make your feed fresh and new all the time. Right? Uh, you, could, you could imagine, imagine if you logged into to Facebook or Twitter and it was like, yeah, well, here's the people that you follow, and um, especially Facebook, because you don't follow as many usually, and like, or Instagram, 
I'm just going to show you the people that you've seen. Like if you notice on Instagram, if you scroll through the most recent stuff, they don't keep showing you the older stuff you've already seen. They're trying to give you some variety and they just start suggesting stuff. They throw things in, right? That's to give you some variability in there that wouldn't otherwise exist. Um, the fourth, if we continue, so you get your variable reward. And, and by the way, with some products, it can just be no reward or reward. That's enough, right? Um, and then you uh, and then you move to the investment phase. Now, investment is when you do some work that makes the product better for you. The, it makes it more addictive for you. It, so it, you do some work that increases the odds that you'll want to make another pass of the cycle. So in a, um, here, let me read from the book. Uh, the investment occurs when the user puts something into the product or service, such as time, data, effort, social capital, or money. The investment implies an action that improves the service for the next go-around. So some examples. When you add your friends, right, you've improved that experience for yourself. When you've liked things, you've given them information about what you like so they can give you more stuff so you're going to like it more the next time, right? They can give you things that are more tailored to you. Um, so that's the investment you're making. You're doing a thing. You're liking something. You're commenting on something, right? When you comment on Twitter, what happens? Well, now all the comments show up in your notifications and people reply and like, you're, you're getting more out of it now. You're getting more of this reward stuff coming out. So you're making the product better by interacting it. That's the investment you're making um, in, in Twitter in that example. And then, so that, and that brings you back to the, to the trigger. So the goal of a lot of these products is for you to feel a certain way and have the default thing that you do uh, like to, to associate the internal trigger. I have, let's say it's, I'm bored. That's a common one. I'm feeling a little bit bored. They want you immediately to think of Instagram. I'm feeling a little bit bored. Instagram. And you pick up your phone and you're like, ah, Instagram, ah, right? That's what they want. That's an internal trigger. They didn't, they didn't tell you about Instagram. Your phone's not even in your hand. But you pick it up. Not because it bothers you, but because you are bored. You have a moment of anxiety, whatever it is. And you, and you, that, so once they've connected your internal emotional trigger um, and it, you've associated it with their product, this loop becomes very, very powerful for them. And this is, this is the, the hook loop, right? Um, this is how a lot of information is presented to us. Uh, not all information, um, but a lot of stuff is. Someone says, Greg the Baritone says, successful video games have this reward system down. Yeah, this is old. A lot of people have it down. Um, uh, there's a whole gamification subject you can study, right? Like how to gamify things. Um, but it is about the variable reward. And, and uh, you see that if you play video games, you see that all the time. Rarely do you have a video game where you're like, you do something and you know what the reward's going to be. Sometimes there's there's moments in the game where you know what the reward is and you, you know, you earn the shield of blah, blah, blah by doing X, Y, and Z. But often you get something and it's not clear what that something's going to be. Um, okay. So how do we have, so there's all this information in the internet. How is this presented to us? Like I said, a lot of this does come through the hook model, right? If you're, if you're getting information from any social media site, you're absolutely you're absolutely in the hook model, right? 
there are probably some aggregators who do this a lot less. They're just not good at it or they don't care or they think of themselves as traditional, you know, newspapers or whatever or, or, or aggregators and they just list some stuff and maybe they're not, they haven't really focused on the hook model, although some of them even have um, by like getting you to, they're paying attention to which stories you're reading and trying to make the experience better and trying to get you to, you know, interact in different ways or whatever. So most of the information you're getting is, is, is this model. All of the information you're getting, regardless of whether it's in this model or not, all of the information you're consuming online is curated by something or someone, right? Like there's all the information in the world and then there has to be a subset of the information that you see, right? And then there's a smaller subset of what you actually interact with. But someone's moved, like someone's, like there's all the information in the world, someone's put a certain amount of that information in front of you. So it's all curated in some way. And the, and the ways that that information is curated, we've talked about a lot before, but like um, it's culturally curated through the Overton window, for example, right? Um, can't Now you can't question the science or whatever. There's a, there's a window, the Overton window is the window of allowable um, conversation. So Google News will never put an argument, you know, they're never going to put an article up written by, you know, the wrong person. I won't even say his name, Dr. RM. They're never going to put that article up, right? Uh, but, you know, a Fauci article, sure, right? So there's there's that kind of thing. There's normalization is another uh, thing that happens with uh, with curation where the government has expanded, let's say, this is just an example of normalization. We've expanded so that now the government is, um, you know, strikes, railroad strikes are in the, in the news right now a lot because there might be some railroad strikes. Well, the government expanded a while ago to like get its nose in between employers and employees. It didn't used to be. Um, and unions, as a, as a free market capitalist, there was a place that I would say there's absolutely a place for unions, right? Because they can leverage their collective, you know, their, their labor against, uh, to get, get some negotiating leverage against uh, an employer and come to some kind of mutual agreement on like, that's totally fine. But what's happened? The government got its nose in, in all of the unions. There's rules about unions. There's government rules about who they, they might. I mean, I was hearing a thing in NPR this morning. Oh, the, well, the Biden administration might force them back to work. Like, okay, well, you're not supposed to be able to do that. But also they force companies to do things. Like, so there's force involved all over the place. The government's expanded. And that's just how we think about unions, unions now. No one says, should we have a National Labor Relations Board? Shouldn't we just fire everyone that works there and defund the entire National Labor Relations Board? No, we've normalized it. That's just what we expect. It's the same kind of classic libertarian, uh, you know, the pushback on libertarians. How will we get the roads? We've normalized that roads are paid through taxes to the government who then uh, hires an inefficient contractor to do a crappy job and put potholes in front of your house. Like that's, that's, that's what we've normalized. So uh, that's, that's kind of what everyone expects. And they, you can't think outside of that, you know, until recently, uh, socialized healthcare wasn't really normalized in the U.S., but it, it is now, right? People aren't even, no one's saying, let's repeal Obamacare completely and get rid of, I mean, some people are, but the question's like, well, how do we tweak it? Oh, I, we've accepted that the government can mandate this and that and be in, super involved in them. Okay, well, now what do we do? Uh, doctors, another one. Doctors, pharmaceutical industry, the government's involved, we've normalized it all. Anyway, so that's another way of curation, just like the, the ideas that you're exposed to are in the Overton window and certain ideas are normalized. They're taken as the standard um, to compare everything to. 
and there's the entire knowledge system that we talked about with um what was the name of the book? fossil future right here's here's that knowledge system right research synthesis dissemination evaluation there's this there's this chain of of information passing from reality down to you and at each of these steps there's things that go on so all this stuff we won't go into it again but all this stuff helps curate what you see and most of it's then presented through the loop to you in some way so let's get to our question is this harming us now by the way because i've said this a lot i will point out that harming is a value judgment and the question is like what is what does harm mean to whom for what right like is it harmful to whom for what purpose or whatever right so putting that aside for a moment we'll say is it harming people who want to think generally and be independent thought and is it harming their ability to do so uh, so that's the question we're gonna ask and i'll also say look probably it's a nuanced answer we do live in a kind of manichaean culture with a lot of black and white thinking and either or stuff everything's a dichotomy you're this or that you're this or that um i was uh i was listening i i haven't listened to stefan molyneux in years uh, i used to i used to listen to him um i don't really know i know he he i think he's now christian maybe sort of i i don't know i i i, I can't tell but um i haven't listened to him in a while i was curious uh so i listened to him the other day and he had a quote, this isn't exactly what he said, but I'm gonna give him attribution. Um, he said, nuance is the only thing that both sides hate, which I think is a brilliant observation, right? Both sides of this cultural divide hate nuance. No one, it's like, is it this or that? Is it this or that? Um, but our goal here as thinkers is to allow for nuance. So there's probably nuance in like, is this harmful? There's probably things that it's good for, right? And actually in the book, uh, I near, Al might be a little bit naive about it, but his he does have a section on the ethical use of it, and he does think that like it can help people get uh, better by their own standards, by their own judgment. Like you can employ this to help them develop habits and things that they that they think are good for themselves that they want. So that you know he does think that there's a way to kind of do this uh, in a positive way for people. I think that's. Uh, maybe there is a way to do it and maybe it does happen but i don't think it's common so there certainly is a so my point is there's certainly positives column for this like there's certainly positive things that we could add up that say these are all the great things but we're not going to talk about them right now um we're going to recognize this nuance we're going to talk about the negative column because there's definitely a negative column there's definitely uh downsides to this i'm just going to cite a few examples in 2008 study uh by david nichols uh, on the Google generation, which which is anyone born, I think, after 1993. He did a study on their internet habits, and he found that 60% of e-journal users viewed a max of three pages of an article. That's it. And then 65% never returned to finish the article, ever. Right? So you're seeing some dropping off lack of ability to focus. Um, in, in another study... Actually, there's been several studies on this, uh, what they call heavy media multitasking, uh, which is how a lot of young people operate today. Heavy media multitasking has been found to negatively impact working memory tasks, working memories that crow that we were talking about earlier, right? Um, 
you get poorer performance of heavy media multitaskers due to their reduced ability to discriminate between information in working memory and long-term memory. Kind of a weird thing, but that's what uh, a lot of studies have determined. Uh, there's actually a paper here. I'll show you this paper, and we can we can look at the we can look at the results together. For that, we'll, we'll look at the abstract. It's a paper called Cognitive Control in Media Multitaskers. Oh, wait, I didn't put it on screen. There it is. Cognitive, cognitive Control in Media Multitaskers. This is from 2009. I'll skip down the abstract here. Results show that heavy media multitaskers are more susceptible to interference from irrelevant, irrelevant environmental stimuli and from irrelevant representations in memory. This led to the surprising result that heavy media multitaskers performed worse on a test of task, a test of task switching ability. That is surprising. So if you do heavy media multitasking, you're worse at multitasking. From a, they perform worse on a test of task switching, switching ability, likely due to the reduced ability to filter out interference from the irrelevant task set. These results demonstrate that media multitasking, a rapidly growing societal trend, is associated with a distinct approach to fundamental information processing. So, yeah, it's definitely affecting us. Uh, the guy I mentioned before who, who wrote this Atlantic article, Nicholas Carr, he also wrote a book in 2010 called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. And in it, he writes, if knowing what we know today about the brain's plasticity, you were to set out to invent a medium that would rewire our mental circuits as quickly and thoroughly as possible, you would probably end up designing something that looks and works a lot like the internet. So yeah, there's deleterious effects here. We know that. Um, I'm particularly concerned about focus. Focus is necessary for success and progress. Um, and, and, and focus is basically being able to say no and shut a bunch of stuff out. It's to narrow your vision. It's, think of hunting. Focus is saying no to a whole bunch of stuff and just focusing on it and doing one thing. Um, and we're losing that ability as a society. So let's ask the question, is your brain being hacked? Is your brain being hacked? You know, in science fiction movies, I just saw this recently and I forget what uh, movie or show. There's always like, <laughs> When anyone wants, like, in science fiction movies, when anyone wants, like, information from someone's brain, there's always some, like, stainless steel uh, table or chair, like, recliner with straps that hold you down and, like, big metal probes or a thing in your brain. And, like, we're going to extract your memory. It's like this, and it's, you know, and you fight it by, like, ah, I'm not going to let you. I'm going to think about my dog growing up, and you're not going to get the codes to the nuclear, whatever, right? Um that's kind of how it's portrayed. This is how we extract information from you. Um, or actually in non-science fiction movies, they just, you know, we're going to extract information through torture or whatever. Um, and, uh, or, or even that's how they might plant, that's how they might plant behavior in you, like mature, Manchurian candidate style. We're going to, we're going to, you know, do these things where it's going to be intense. We're going to play Barney at blaring levels and, you know, tape your eyes open and all this kind of stuff to get behavior. To, to work in a certain way. It's all very coercive. It's all very, it's like forces involved. It's very dramatic, which is why it makes for good television and good movies. It's very dramatic. Um, that's not at all what's happening. You are cooperating. 
It's not dramatic at all. Makes for less exciting television and movies if someone's like, eh, we're just going to social engineer our way into having you do what we want and you giving us information. Like, it's just a conversation, basically. That's all it is. You're cooperating with all of this. Um, you know, I, I quoted Sun Tzu earlier, and I'm referring to uh, the people presenting this information as your enemies, not because they are necessarily your enemies. I, I think they're not, for the most part. They're not actually trying to be your enemies. But, you know, maybe some of them are. But they are vying for your attention and time, right? And if you don't understand what they're doing, you're likely to lose. They're, they're make their they're um, courting you for your time and attention. If you don't understand how they're working, you're likely to give in. You're likely to lose. And giving that gives them the, basically the only thing you have in life, which is time. Time is what your life is made of. You've got a certain number of minutes, however those are going to be. Like That's what you got. That's your stuff that you have. Giving your time away is giving your life away to them. Um, and you're doing that more than you would if you actually understood the methods they were using. If you understood what was going on, you might give them less of your time. So that's why I'm using the Sun Tzu and calling them enemies. But really, they're not enemies in the sense that they're your buds. You're cooperating with them. You're not being probed. You're not being forced. They're not tying you down to stainless steel recliners in, in you know, hospital-looking environments with you know, cool VR things happening around and whatever, and CGI. Uh, they're simply exploiting your ignorance. They're just exploiting your ignorance. Right. Um, which is fine in some sense, like most people are ignorant of most things. So you can't wait to act or to, to give something, like offer something to someone. You can't wait until they understand everything about what you're doing. Right. You can't, you couldn't, you couldn't sell cars if you're like, let me explain how this commercial's, you know, emotional hook will make you feel blah, 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 blah. Okay. Now let's watch the commercial. Like you can't do that. So yeah, sure. They're going to exploit your ignorance of some stuff because they've studied it and they know what gets you excited. So fine. It's not their responsibility to make sure that we understand this stuff. I really don't think it's their responsibility. However, the information is publicly available and they have actually explained it. They've written books and put Stanford courses online and like it's all over the place. It's readily available. They train people in this. So it's not like it's not there. They're not hiding it. Um, it's there. So you know, if if I lived next door to Mike Tyson, right, and I said, Mike, come on over. I mean, oh, I'm an 80s kid, so I'm going to say Mike Tyson. I don't know who to replace him with, but we'll say Mike Tyson, young Mike Tyson, uh, you know, in his 20s or 30s. Uh, hey, hey, Mike, come on over. Uh, let's do some sparring, right? And, of course, Mike would say, sir, that sounds fun. So he would come over. Um and let's say we set some rules. Hey, this is how the sparring is going to go. He agrees to the rules. So we get in the ring, and he follows the rules. And, and he clobbers me, and I'm bleeding, and teeth are falling out because he kicked my ass, right? Um, and he clobbers me, and, and he's, he pauses the fight, and he says, should, should we stop? <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 I like this. This is good. All right. So he keeps, like, and he kicks my ass. He clicks my ass and that's how it was. I can't afterwards leave the ring and be like, you assaulted me. No, he did not assault me. I asked for it, right? The internet, the apps on the internet, the big tech on the internet, 
They can't force you to interact with them. You can't accuse them of forcing you. They're not forcing you. They can't even force you to interact with them. Right? And they in the way that they want you to, like they can't force you to interact with them. So all the damage from the internet, internet, all that damage from what we're talking about, it all relies on your cooperation. Now, granted, they're really good at getting your cooperation, but that's your responsibility. So without being a Luddite, now the question is, how do we deal with this? Because I don't believe in being a Luddite. I don't, and, and by the way, I'm going to talk about this stuff. I'm not like I certainly have times in my life where I've got, you know, sometimes I'll go for a few months and I feel really good. I got not really much media going on. I'm never on Twitter and I'm like, feeling weird. but there's definitely times when I'm like, I just Instagram for an hour. Right. Or like I binge television shows where like that happens. I, I fall off the wagon and do it. So I'm not an expert, but um, the question is without being a Luddite, which, which we shouldn't do because there's a lot, there is a positive column to, having access to the internet and other people. We couldn't have this conversation without it. So without being a Luddite, what do we do? What do we do to protect ourselves from this? Um, and the best thing I've come up with uh, so far, maybe other people have good ideas, um, is a mindset shift. And this is a mindset shift away from being driven by the internet which is how I think most people treat devices in the internet. This is where you receive information from and respond to the internet. You're passive, you're a passive consumer. You're led by the internet, right? Away from that model towards a model where you drive the internet, you and your goals come first and the devices around you that are connected to the internet are a means to achieve your goals. So for example, when you wake up, I know a lot of people wake up and the first thing they do is they grab this thing. They grab their phone, right? Uh, and they, you know, scroll on Instagram or whatever, right? When you wake up, does the internet tell you what to focus on for the day or do you tell it what you're doing? And I don't mean posting. Well, I'll, I'll get into what I mean by that. But um, personify it. Like personify the internet if you want. And ask yourself during your day, who interrupts whom? Who drives the agenda of, of your time? Is it you or is it the internet? Um, let's, so actually, let me give an example. So, so I call this like an active mindset versus a passive mindset. I'm going to, when I was uh, much younger in, in around, uh, let's say around 2000, let's say 22 years ago or so, right around the turn of the century, which sounds like a very old person thing to say. Right around the turn of the century, uh, I was working uh, with um, a guy. He's he my boss. Uh, his name was Paul. I won't dox him. Uh, and he was probably the smartest person I've ever, still to this day, ever met or had the pleasure of working with or speaking. I mean, the guy was an absolute genius. Um, still is, I assume, unless he's, you know, had a car accident or something. I mean, brilliant guy. Um, and widely recognized in his field as one of the top people in the world. Uh, and his field was not easy. <laughs> um, he viewed his computer at the time as an extension of his brain. He was very explicit about this. He viewed it as like a co-processor for his brain. 
He's very goal oriented. He was rarely a passive consumer of anything. And I remember he used to have on his computer, he had a, a scripting window open constantly, just like a, he could type a script and execute it. And he would do that all the time. He would like, I wonder how many blah, blah, blahs do blah, blah, blah. Use, like, he, like any kind of semi-mathematical question or model he could do, he would like take a minute or 10 minutes or whatever and script, like throw together some script and do it. And like, it made him, uh, it was interesting because he, he kind of did have this co-processors because he could script very quickly. Um, and he was just super intelligent. He would ask these questions like, I, you know, I wonder what the probability of this is and how this would happen. And like, instead of just kind of wondering and being overwhelmed by it, he would just, oh, well, I'll just find, I'll just find out. He would code it and then he would have an answer and he would move on. Um, now he did have a weakness and his weakness was television. If there was a television on, we traveled uh, together a lot. If there was a television on like in an airport or hotel, he was like, just staring at, the, he couldn't, he stared at the television. It was very hard for him. Uh, but he also knew how to solve the problem. He didn't have a television. He didn't own a television. This is before you could watch television from the internet. So he solved the problem by not owning one. Right. And he was aware. He was very aware that he was like, I'm too addicted to own a television. I can't, I can't, if there's a screen on, I got to stare at it. Now, um, like Paul, computers, phones, the internet, they should be viewed as tools for us. Right. Like cars, like any other tool, they can be driven by us. The difference between them and cars is if we let them, this technology will drive us. So the mindset shift I'm talking about when it comes to technology is, is to use this stuff actively for a purpose of our own choosing and to never use it passively without purpose. It's, it's really just a mindset shift. It's like, it's almost being, I almost view it as being a predator, like the, and the, and the, my phone and the internet are prey and like, how am I going to exploit them for what I want to do? I'm not listening to what they have to say. I'm not going to sit down and ask them what to do. They're my prey. If I need something, I'm going to get it. I'm going to go hunt it from the internet. And then I'm done. I'm done after that. Um, there's a, there's a passage actually, this reminded me of this kind of, uh, active mind, this purposeful purpose driven, uh, mentality reminded me of a, uh, passage in or a scene in Atlas Shrugged when Francisco D'Anconia was really young. Uh, for those of you who haven't read, he's one of the heroes of the book. And there's a, there's a scene when he's really young and um, he's just very, this very successful, very competent kid doing all sorts of stuff, having jobs early and doing all sorts of things. And he's very admirable. Um, and he stays in the summers with the Taggarts. And there's a scene, which I'm just going to read here, uh, about, about Francisco. And it starts with Mrs. Mrs. Taggart speaking. She says, I don't know what sort of motto the Danconias have on their family crest, Mrs. Taggart said once, but I'm sure that Francisco will change it to what for? It was the first question he asked about any activity proposed to him, and nothing would make him act if he found no valid answer. He flew through the days of his summer month like a rocket, but if one stopped him in mid-flight, he could always name the purpose of his every random movement moment. <laughs> Two things were impossible to him, to stand still or to move aimlessly. Now that kind of an attitude, obviously this is romanticized and it's, you know, it's a fiction book. Um, 
and in that particular fiction book, the, the heroes are essentialized, right? So it's, it's hyperbolic to some extent, but this is a, that kind of a, a mentality is a byproduct of living consciously, right? Is purposeful action. Now ask yourself, let's, I'll, I'll wait and see if someone answers. What do they call the application on your computer that accesses the internet? I mean, I know any software can, but what do they call them? What do they call that? It's not a trick question. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for an answer. Browser. Thank you, Greg the Baritone. Silence was getting awkward. It's called the browser. This is intentional. It suggests how you're expected to behave. Browsing is a passive activity and it lacks direction. You need to stop browsing and you need to start hunting. That's how you don't let the internet control you. That's how you stop this. You don't browse, you hunt. If you're active, if you're hunting, you use the internet in the way that my old boss, Paul, used his computer 20 years ago. It's very purposeful. Use it to fulfill whatever purpose you have. You want to research something. You want to learn something. You want to do some productive activity. It could actually be entertainment, which we'll get to in a minute, but use it purposefully. Don't, so and a couple points here. Number one, don't let it interrupt you. Do not let the internet interrupt you ever, 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 ever. It doesn't need to interrupt you. Turn off all your notifications. Get rid of open tabs. I tend to keep open tabs up and like close them all on a thing so I can save them later, but whatever. Get them out of your visual field. Get notifications off. You're going to have FOMO on this. You're going to have fear of missing out. And the answer is yes, you are going to miss something. And it's not important. As I said before, you're seeing a tiny, there's a whole world of things that are happening. You're already seeing a tiny subset. Even if you spent 24 hours a day online, you're seeing a tiny subset of what's happening in the world. You're already missing most things. You're always missing something. The definition of focus is that you're missing a whole bunch of other stuff. You're only doing the thing. So you're already missing a whole bunch of stuff. Almost none of the things that you'll miss by turning off your notifications, like none of this is going to matter. All the stuff you'll miss, it's not going to be relative to your actual life. It's not going to be relative to productive work. It's not going to be relative to your relationship with your family and friends. Yeah, if someone says, did you see that meme with the drooling guy who does the blah, 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 you might go, no. And if it's that great of a meme, they'll pick up their phone, and, oh, you got to see it, check it out, and they'll show it to you. You're not going to miss anything important. It doesn't matter. Did you see what Taylor Lorenz said? Oh, my God, Biden had a, you know, he, he had a kerfuffle all right oh he fell off his bike like okay fine none of it's important it doesn't matter it doesn't matter you're gonna miss it who cares so that's one thing i was like turn off all your notifications i don't even have email notifications. i don't care my email is for i will check my email when i check my email right and two i would say don't start the day with the internet it's a really bad way to start the day this is why as horrible as npr is i'm not gonna tell you to listen to npr because I think some people would want to murder me if I recommended that. As bad as NPR is, I mean, it's got the Overton window problem. It's got the normalization problem. It's got the knowledge system problem. It's a complete left crap hole. It's got all that bias. I wish there was a more, you know, libertarian or freedom oriented version of NPR. There's not that I'm aware of. Um, but for all its faults, it's focused. It's not overstimulating. 
and it gives me a digest of information to start my day. That's it. I turn it on. They do. They run through the headlines. Blah, 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 done. I'm not. There's not 18 different things going on. There's not like, listen to this part over here. Click on this. But like, that's not there. It's just there. It's not overstimulating. It's focused on some news, which is what I want in the morning. Gives me information to digest over. Right. It's better than CNN. Even if CNN was better uh, politically, which I don't think it is, but even if it was, uh, CNN's got like tickers and this and that, blah, 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 and it's you know, and it's more surface level, more indoctrination, and then it switches to commercials every five minutes, and it's like you know, bye Viagra, like it's just a constant barrage of bullcrap, right? So, not that NPR is good. Again, I'm not going to argue you should be NPR. Sometimes I read Morning Brew. I mean, there's there's things like Morning Brew where you get you can get an email digest of like here's some news, and like sometimes I'll I'll read that, but it's not cluttered. Right? It's not cl it's why I read it. It's not cluttered. There's like one explicit advertising section usually. And it's like, okay, fine. Like I know. Okay, great. But there's some thing I, I read it. I'm done. I got my, I got my fix of the news. Right. So, so don't start your day. Um, and then I would say, cause we're not Luddites. You are going to use it, right? Set your goals, goals for the day, goals for your life, whatever, but set your goals for the day or whatever without the internet only use it to only use the tools to complete your goals don't 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 like jump into it and and like set goals based on it at all right so like you don't open your email in the morning and go oh what should i do you decide what should i do and if part of what you should do is well i should i should check email and respond to customer complaints about you know the widget we're selling. okay fine like i'm going to allocate an hour for that you do that you do need to check your email that's fine or you know Use your product management tool, or if you need to post on Twitter because you you're marketing stuff or whatever, fine, do all that. And maybe you might even need to look for Twitter. Maybe I'm you know I gotta go see what's trending on Twitter so I can do this thing for my job. Blah, blah. Okay, fine, right? But use it to complete your goals, not to just uh, not mindlessly, not to help set your goals. Don't let your email tell you what to do today. It's a horrible idea. Think of the internet as your servant. Right. I've never had a servant, but I guess you would say, like, do what I want for me and then go away. That's the Internet. Right. We could use the uh, the master slave uh, metaphor. GitHub, I think, uh, got rid of that because it's too offensive. Um, but I will, I'll bring it back. We'll use instead of uh, I think they now call it main and secondary or something. But use that like you're the master. The Internet's your slave. Think of it that way. Right. If that's morally reprehensible, then. He's just a dutiful servant, the internet. You're paying him a fair wage. Um, now, one pitfall here, uh, it's a pitfall for me. I assume it's a pitfall for, for, a lot, for a lot of people. It's relatively easy to be like, okay, I'm going to wake up and not check the internet. Okay, I'm going to close my tabs. I'm going to turn off notifications. I'm going to structure all that stuff in my life pretty easily. Um, one pitfall I have, is, and, and a lot of people I have, I think, is downtime, right? You've completed your goals or some tasks or whatever. Your brain gets tired sometimes. At least mine does. Maybe everyone else's brain is better. But sometimes I get tired. I need a break. Um, there is a rational role for downtime, even for passive entertainment. Like, there's a reason to, to have downtime. You can rejuvenate your mind. You can kind of replenish that spent emotional and, me and mental energy. Right? So there's a, there's, a, there's a valid reason for that. But let's look at the difference between 
downtime without the internet and downtime with the internet. Now, without the internet, you might go for a walk, right? I need to take a break. What, what did you do in the 80s when it was break time? Or the 70s, I guess, I don't know. You go outside for a cigarette. People, <laughs> I didn't take a cigarette break. They would go out and smoke, right? But you know, you would go out for a walk. Maybe you just go sit outside or hang out. Maybe you'd chat with someone at the water cooler or whatever. If it's a long break, you might read a book or cook something or even do something like a manual task like cleaning, take a break or whatever. Um, so those are the things that you would do. Now, sometimes if you if it's a long break, let's say it's Saturday afternoon or whatever, um, this kind of thing can lead to boredom. It's like, all right, I'm sitting outside now. I took my walk. Now I'm bored or whatever. Um, by the way, exposure to overstimulation increases your baseline for your, your boredom threshold, right? So the more you're exposed to overstimulation, the more stimulation you need to not be bored, right? So it's like, a, like heroin um, or any drug that you build up a, a tolerance to. So, so you can get, you can, you can see boredom. I think maybe the best example for boredom is you see it in kids a lot, especially now it seems like, but, um, you know, they finish their homework for some reason, let's say they can't be playing with their friends at a soccer game or for my daughter, it would be, she can't be at the barn, right? For some reason, right? If you disallow the internet, the media, uh, like, you know, media stuff like Netflix or whatever, if you disallow all that stuff, you disallow screens, internet. Boredom for kids often becomes like comes really quickly, really quickly. They'll be like, I'm bored. Right. I sometimes have even disallowed books because my daughter is uh, like super fiction book. She reads like a fiend. Right. And sometimes I'll be like, no, you cannot. No more reading fiction books. Like, stop. Right. Um, because I want her to be bored because the feeling of boredom is good for you. And let's talk about why. Uh, well, it's uncomfortable is the main reason. And that that discomfort spurs you. You'll hear it all the time. Parents will say, find something to do. It spurs you to find something to do. That discomfort gets you to find something to do, right? So that boredom has a purpose. You're bored. Okay, fine. You're bored. Now you got to find something to do. Now, absent to any easy passive stimulation, right, without, i.e. without the modern internet, right? There's an inevitable result that seems to happen when you're bored. It might, sometimes it takes a while and you're like, oh, I don't know what to do, blah, blah, blah. but eventually you usually set a goal of some kind. It might not be a big goal, it might be a big goal, right? It might be, you know, when I was a kid, it would be like, oh, I'm gonna go build a tree house or a fort with my friends, or I'm gonna go, uh, I'm gonna learn a new trick on my skateboard, or I'm gonna write a computer game, right? Which I tried to, well, I guess, semi-successfully, it just wasn't a good game, uh, did when I was a kid, right? Uh, I'm going to write a story. I'm going to draw a picture. I'm going to learn a song. I'm gonna, what, like, I'm going to do something. Like, have you set a goal? Whatever it is. Like, okay, I'm bored. I'm going to sit with this discomfort. I eventually don't like it anymore. So I'm kind of forced into setting a goal to do something. I got to have a purpose. Right? I got to find a purpose. Right? There's nothing to browse. There's something to like sit back and passively consume. I got to, okay, well, I got to invent something. Um, and that new goal that you invent, it's born of your own creativity. It's, uh, it's, I mean, I think it's a beautiful thing. It's weird for me to say, I think boredom is a beautiful thing, but the outcome of boredom is a beautiful thing. Um, it's this new goal of yours. It's truly yours, right? It's, I think it's one of the, it sounds hyperbolic, but it's one of the highest forms of self-expression, right? Because 
It's coming just from you. There is nothing else. And you have to be like, what do I want? What do I want? It's, it's really like, oh, that's my new goal, right? And, and that thing that you work on will give you the rest that you need because um, you wouldn't be motivated to set it as a goal if it didn't, right? So uh, if you're tired from doing manual labor, this downtime might actually be sitting and doing something intellectual. If you're tired from intellectual labor, that new goal might be you know, very manual but not very intellectual. But whatever it is, it, it comes from you. It remotivates and energizes you. Um, and, and then, like I said, it serves a form of rest because it's different from whatever tired you out. So it's as if it's a form of rest. Um, I also think because your self-esteem is partially driven by your sense of self-efficacy, which is, which is like your, um, do you feel competent to face and conquer the world? So to, to live in the world, to, to achieve your goals, right? Um, by, you know, usually by like altering the world around you or altering yourself to, to better master the world around you, having a, a goal, um, and doing something that's kind of a self-directed, uh, leisurely goal increases your sense of self-efficacy. Um, so it's got that benefit to it. It also decreases the pain of future boredom because as, as we mentioned, like there's that tolerance level. So if you build up a habit of, I feel a little bit bored. I immediately go, you're kind of using that feedback loop yourself that, that, that I feel a little bit bored. I'm immediately like triggered now to do some introspection. About, okay. Well, what do I want to do and invent some stuff? Like if that becomes your loop, that's great. You develop some inner strength there. You develop some self-knowledge and purpose about what you want. Like, and, and, uh, and it makes it easier to deal with boredom in the future. So sans the internet, like that's what we've got. And I think there's a lot of value in this. It sounds television, I guess, right? Um, but what happens in 2022 when we are? Well, for most people, you, they start to feel that get that feeling of boredom. Fine. Um, and in the past, there was a relatively big uh, psychological barrier barrier to solve it. You would have to turn inward, like I said, and identify what you want. But now. You have basically zero barrier to solving it immediately. All you have to do, you get a, you know, pick up, pick up a remote control, press a few buttons. Boom. Passive content consumption. Or open up Instagram. Or God forbid, TikTok, right? Boom. Just give in, just lay back and give in to passivity. There's nothing to do. Allow yourself to be the slave. Allow yourself to be controlled. Zero effort. Because it's it's engineered to keep your attention. So you literally don't have to have put in any emotional or mental effort. You just, if you can get yourself to click on that Instagram, like press the Instagram button, done. There's no more real work. You're kind of motivated after that to scroll and whatever. Like there's nothing to do. It's so easy. So you've got this zero barrier You've access to like super easy access, zero barrier to solving your boredom problem. Now, if you solve it that way, it will pass time, as many of you know. Uh, but you don't get any of the benefits from your self-chosen goal. You actually don't get the rest. Um, you don't get that self-expression. You don't get that sense of self-efficacy. You don't get any practice at self-examination, like figuring out what you want. And it reduces your tolerance for boredom in the future. Right, because the, which will so that basically it increases the pain of boredom, right? Because you're not exercising that deal with boredom muscle. There's that 
there's that deal with boredom muscle. Like I'm bored. Oh, I got to figure stuff out. And the more you do that, the easier it is to deal with boredom and you can solve it very quickly. Oh, I know why I'm going to go learn a new instrument or whatever. Right. But this increases uh, the pain of boredom. So you can stand it even less, which means you're more likely to just turn to passivity next time really quickly. And the result of all this is that you end up with no motivation. It absolutely saps your motivation. It's a vicious cycle. Like who, if you've ever binged on a Netflix series, you answer this question for yourself. At the end of it, are you like, I'm super motivated now. That was a motivating, relaxing time. Like, no, you're like, well, then I just watch. <laughs> like, it's, it's a vicious cycle. The no motivation that you get out of it means that you're less likely to do something else because you're not motivated, which leads to more boredom and you're unequipped to deal with it. Like, it's this negative feedback loop, right? Which is why people compare digital media to a drug. It's it's a passive activity and it's a palliative drug. It's not getting at the root cause. It's just palliative. Um, so it's not actually solving your problem. Now, the caveat I'll say is I'm not saying complete passivity is not okay sometimes. Sometimes it's even necessary for your, you know, rejuvenation. And that's fine. There's a another Ayn Rand book, there's a scene in the Fountainhead where uh, Hank Reardon goes on vacation with Gail Winand, I think on Winand's yacht or whatever, and Winand marvels at how much, how little someone can do. Like Reardon just like lays there like all day on the raft or whatever. He's just like, that's absolutely nothing. And he's like, wow, I can't believe that anyone could do so much of nothing, like just literally nothing. Um, so there is a, there is a purpose for this. Uh, and there, but, but you need to, it needs to be intentional, right? In Rudin's case, he's like, oh, I'm going on a vacation. I don't remember how it was a couple of weeks or whatever. I'm going on a vacation with Gail Winand. It is a vacation. That is the purpose. I will do nothing. That is what I want. Like, I'm going to do nothing. That's what I want. Okay, fine. Like, you, you can say I'm going to intentionally spend a predetermined amount of time doing something passive that I find pleasurable or relaxing or whatever, right? So I'm going to watch a movie. That's my path. Like, okay, fine. It's And if you just watch a movie and you don't, like keep clicking on what's next or whatever, then, then you've done that and that's fine. Um, and if it's intentional and like that, that's, that's okay. That, that's, I think something that could be healthy, right? And sometimes you need that. Um, so that, that's intentional passivity. That's, I'm going to be passive now and I'm going to give over control for this period of time to this thing because it's, I need to relax. Right. But impulsive passivity like, I don't know what to do. I guess I'll do it. Like, that's very dangerous. That's very, very dangerous in the modern world. Um, it wasn't in the past, right? Because you'd sit there and eventually the pain would be like, oh, I'm too bored. I got to do so. But now it's very dangerous to have impulsive passivity and to be like, it's a long day and I'm tired. I guess I'll just turn on Netflix. Like, that's dangerous, right? Um, it's not planned. Uh, it's not an intentional thing. Um and I would encourage you to do as little of that as possible anyway, even if it's intentional and try and get bored. Um, but if you're going to do it, you want intentional, limited, structured things. Like how many times have you been, I'm picking on Netflix right now, but how many times have you been watching Netflix and you get to the end, maybe with your spouse or whatever. And I think there was even a Portlandia episode about this. Speaking of binge watching, right? Where like, <laughs> just, just one more episode, boom. And like, just one more episode, boom. Like that can go on forever. In fact, uh, there's a somewhat embarrassing story of me um, 
like, I don't know, it was like more than a year ago, I guess. Uh, <clears throat> Cyberpunk 2077 came out. And it was a video game, for those of you who don't know. And it was like 8 p.m. And I'm playing. Uh, and my daughter's like, I'm going to bed. I'm like, okay. She's like, Dad, don't stay up. For some, I don't know where my wife was at the time. It doesn't matter. She wasn't around. She was traveling or something. Just the two of us. And <laughs> Dad, don't stay up. I'm like, oh, no, don't worry. I'm just going to finish this one thing, and I'll, I'll be right to bed. So, you know, I'm playing the video game, and some time passes. And uh, she comes downstairs, and she's like, she can see you, like, tentatively. Dad? And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, what's up? She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm just, you know, finishing up my game. <laughs> it's three in the morning. <laughs> right? And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> what just happened to me? What just happened to me? Um, so <laughs> also be aware of what doesn't work. If you can't stop yourself, don't do it. Right? And, you know, sometimes maybe like setting an alarm might work. Some people will be like, nah. I'm going to stop the alarm anyway. It doesn't matter, right? My boss, my old boss's uh, method is like, I'm just not going to have a TV. That's what would work, right? You could schedule things with a hard stop. So it's like, well, I have this thing that I need to do, especially if a third party is involved. I have this thing I need to do at this time. So if I want to devote an hour to this leisurely activity, I'm going to start it an hour before that hard stop, and I can't actually go over, right? Um, your spouse isn't helpful if she's on the couch next to you when you're doing this, but if she's not... And, she, and she's, there's a third party that's involved. And you're like, look, let's do this thing at this other time. Like, she can be there to make sure. Like, no, you're not going to keep watching whatever it is or keep playing a video game. So we can't get rid of this oversaturation around us. And I don't think we would want to because there are benefits of this tech. Like, if you are hunting for things, it's great to have a plethora of information, to have all the world's information at your fingertips. That is awesome. But it can be dangerous. And just like any technology, right? Opioids can help with short-term pain after surgery. That's great. I had my appendix out once. Uh, they gave me opioids. It helped with the pain. Also, I guess I could have become an addict and ruined my life. Like It can happen too, which a lot of people, I think, have done with opioids. Um, I don't particularly like opioids at all, but whatever. Um, even knives, right? Knives, knife could, the, There was a knife that was used to take my appendix out during surgery. You know, or a knife could be used, you know, on a stabbing spree in Saskatchewan. Right. So just like any tech, it can be used both ways, but you gotta you gotta know how to use it. You gotta know what it is, you gotta understand it, and you gotta know what to do with it. Um so my my general answer to how to deal with your overall saturation here is your mindset shift. Be active, you know, active in your use of the internet, not passive. Be a hunter, not a browser. Don't be a browser. And focus, focus helps you ignore distractions. So if you're focused on doing something, like if I'm researching a particular thing, I'm way less likely to be distracted. Even if there's ads or something on the website, like I'm looking for something. I got a purpose. And I would say structure your life not around avoiding tech, but around your own goals. Tech can be a means to your ends, but they have to be your ends. They have to be your goals, right? And in that, that master-slave uh, relationship with tech, be the master. It's not a... If you approach, like, it is a master-slave kind of thing. One of you is going to be the master because it's not, tech isn't, uh, this isn't like a mutually beneficial win-win 
situation because you've got entire companies trying to get your attention. Like they are intentionally trying to get you to stop what your other goals are and do their goals, which are spend all day on Twitter or whatever it is. Right. So you, you have to own that. You have to own that technology and, and not be owned by it. And by the way, this might be one of the reasons I was thinking about this. There's a resurgence of, I don't know if it resurgence. I don't know if it happened. I don't know if there was a wave of this anytime post to ancient Greece anyway, but there's, there's been a, an interest lately in this stoic practice where you, you catalog, you, you think about all the things and people that you love in your life. Maybe you do this once a day or whatever. Um, and you imagine uh, losing them, right? Which sounds horrific, right? But the, the reason that Stoics do it is because it helps them to appreciate those things more, right? And you realize like, oh, like this moment with my daughter could be my last moment with her. Like things happen, right? Like, so it's just, it, it, it emphasizes this appreciation, right? Um, and there's been kind of this, this trend in, in looking at some of these stoic practices. Well, I'm not a huge fan of stoicism generally, but that's been a trend. And I, I think maybe one of the reasons it is a trend is there, it does help you illuminate what's important in the world, right? You've got, and that's not your Instagram feed, right? It's, it's other things and people and, and goals and, and things that are important to you. It's not, it's not your Instagram feed. So um, maybe that's why that practice is, is becoming more popular. I don't know. But that's my advice on, on this. So to, to kind of wrap up the question, uh, let me just scroll. Let me find that. I have the question written down somewhere. I'm going to find it. <laughs> I'm going to look at it again. So um, the basic question here was, you know, how do we know what to pay attention to? We're saturated by information. And um, there's this worry that it's negatively affecting our minds. Uh, and I would say it's not the information. It's not the information saturation that's negatively affecting us, but it is the presentation. Um, and how do we know what to pay attention to? Um, it's stuff that meets your goals. It's stuff that, that, that helps you in your goal and nothing else. Um, that's, that's how you know what to pay attention to. And I assume that the, that Richard who asked this question isn't asking like, how do I tell what's fake news and what's not? That's a separate question. I don't think that's the question. Um, so, and you know, the, the, the overall episode question here, the title was, is your, is your brain being hacked? And, and I would say, no, it's not being hacked, but it is being social engineered, right? There's two ways to steal your password, fundamentally. Uh, I can hack you somehow. Maybe there's three. I can do some surveillance and get it. I could hack it or can social engineer it, right? Um, you're not being hacked. You're being social engineered. You could call that a human hack, whatever, but that's what's happening. You're being social engineered and you're involved in it. You're participating in it willingly. So stop. I mean, that's, that's the simplified answer. I did have a poll that I put up. So I'm going to, I'm going to close the poll. We'll end the poll and take a look at it and chat here. The question was about how much time do you spend on social media each day in total? 31% of you said less than 10 minutes. Good for you. Uh, someone wanted, like I said, someone earlier, someone wanted a zero. And I, 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 I would answer less than 10 minutes for me. So you throw me in there. I didn't answer it, but 25% um, of you say less than three hours. So that means a quarter of, and 22% said less than one hour. So a large percent, 
a large percentage of you use it between one and three hours. That's a lot. Um, and 20% of you use it more than three hours. I sincerely hope it's because you're a social media job. That's it's your job is to be on social media. Um, Greg, the baritone says, doesn't this video account for that time? It depends. Uh, it depends on your goals. If you're like, well, I want to watch this video because I learned something and this is and like, I have greater goals for understanding these things and I'm learning stuff. And this is part of like education, or even this is a intentional downtime entertainment because Carter's stupid and funny. And I like laughing at him. Like that could be part of your goal. Uh, if you're watching this video, cause you casually found it and like, you were just kind of floating around on YouTube and they presented it to you and you're like, I don't know, then you're probably not still watching it cause it's a long video. Uh, but then no, then, then, then this video does count in kind of your, your downtime like that. Um, so yeah. All right. So, um, as a reminder, I have been asking for these troublesome arguments, which I'm just going to repeat the kind of question. What are some arguments you have trouble refuting or some arguments you'd like to make, but are having trouble articulating? So if you got stuff like that, send it over. We'll try and talk about it in an upcoming show or put it on discord. You can email speak at unsafespace.com, whatever, stick it in comments on YouTube. Uh, once again, it's an enormous thank you to those of you who uh, continue to support Unsafe Space financially, this show and all the shows. Um, like I said, name and credits, Discord server access, all that kind of stuff. Um, in addition to Dangerous Thoughts, which is this show on Wednesday evenings, um, there's a bunch of other stuff that um, that we do. There's a series called Rebel Civics, which happens uh, also on, on Wednesdays. But during the day, uh, that is hosted by Keith Bissett. I think today he something about never forget 9-11 but it's not what you think uh, i'm probably about the patriot act i don't know i don't know what it's about but i haven't watched it but i assume it's not uh the standard never forget stuff uh, probably never forget some lies that uh might have been propagated on on tuesdays every other tuesday roughly we have 451 degrees with alex maselli which is a show on big tech and censorship on mondays we have a show called narrative dissonance with uh, hosted by me and juliet dillon uh, which is where we have a panel of journalists or, uh, or a journalist or some journalists come to talk about uh, the news and how we're being misled. Uh, this week we had uh, Ari Hoffman uh, from the post-millennial. And, uh, and then on Thursday nights, if you're more of a nerd, uh, if you do binge watch Netflix or you watch a lot of science fiction and whatever, well, I guess you could spend some more time watching Tokyo Minority Report with Beverly and Alex. Should be entertaining. Um, also, they could do in a little bit of analysis of the stuff. So you're interested in that, uh, check that out. Also, we have book club coming up on September 25th, the satanic verses by Salman Rushdie, um, which is what, 10 days from now. So not this weekend, but the following weekend, um, and October 30th, it's slaughterhouse five by Kurt Vonnegut. So if you want to be involved in either one of those discussions, or you just want to read, read along with us, uh, you can go to unsafespace.com. I think we have links to the books and stuff. You can get it there. So thanks again, everyone. Um, have a great evening. Sorry about the tech issues at the beginning. I am quite tired of the tech issues. And uh, maybe I'll start asking Beverly to show up at the beginning. But I did test it before I went. So uh, it just fell apart right for the live show. So what are you going to do? All right. Uh, take care, everyone. Have a great, uh, great evening. And I will see you on Monday for Narrative Distance. Until then.
Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. It would be better for your health if you forgot what you just heard. That should be easy for someone of your intelligence. The following co-conspirators are hereby ordered to watch CNN. Experts agree that 87,000 new tax collectors will make inflation feel like less of a problem. I think we can agree that the FBI's track record speaks for itself. If you think about it, only government-sanctioned experts should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice courtesy. Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.